Please be seated. Well, at last it begins, and technically it begins this morning, but functionally, in some ways, it began on Friday. And just as an informal survey and sort of a public confession, I'd like you to raise your hand if you went out and bought something on Black Friday. Go ahead, you can just, I won't make fun of you directly. You know, it's that time of year where it just the, the rush starts, and it gets so wild and fun and other times kind of crazy. And I hope you had a really good Thanksgiving. I did, hanging out with my family, and did the traditional, uh, watch the, the Macy's uh, Thanksgiving Day Parade on TV, and then the dog show, of course, and all this sort of stuff. And, and it, it's, it's funny to me, my wife now rolls her eyes whenever the moment comes when I, I catch myself in the secular side of things, and then I, and then I resent it. And you know, what, you know what sparked it this year? It was during the parade as they kept panning the camera across the building, and on the side of the Macy's building, it said, believe. So I went, and what? You know, believe what? What is Macy's trying to get me to believe? And she said, the magic of the holidays. And I thought, I don't need magic. That is not what we need. We don't need the magic of the holidays. What we need is good news for everyday life. What we need is something to help us in this broken world. And, I, and my wife's rolling her eyes, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm no longer in the Thanksgiving attitude anymore. I've now stepped into Advent fully as a pastor. Now, this morning, I'm starting a new series, and we're titling it Hark the Herald, which means Listen to the Messenger. And uh, on the cover of the bulletin and on the screen, there's a little artwork. I'm, I'm grateful uh, to Aubrey Vinky who did that artwork for us, and we'll have that throughout Advent. And the, the subtitle is Good News for Everyday Life. And Christians have something really to rejoice in. We have a lot of things to rejoice in. And we can get caught up in the consumer side of this and the secular side of the holidays and miss the main point. So we start into Advent today. This is the first Sunday of Advent. It's the beginning of the Christian year. I guess I could technically say Happy New Year, although that, again, is weird. But we are starting the new year of the Christian calendar. And I want to, each week of this Advent series, look at some aspect of the message. What the herald is, is saying, listen, listen to this. And we're going to look at God as our Father today. And then next week, we're going to look at Jesus as the Good Shepherd. And then the third week, we're going to look at the Spirit as the one who gives power for this life. So today, we're in Isaiah 64. And if you'll grab a pew Bible, I'm going to walk through this, this poem. Isaiah 64, the Old Testament reading for today. These lessons are prescribed in the lectionary on a three-year cycle. And if you didn't catch the meaning, the reason we process the gospel down into the congregation is to pick up the symbol of Christ, the Word of God, coming among us. And Advent is about coming. It's about expectant waiting and anticipation. And there's two parts to it. We are remembering, along with ancient Israel, their longing for the Messiah, the suffering servant, the one whom God promised. They waited and waited and longed to see who this would be. And so we, we kind of put ourselves in their shoes and think about what that would be like to wait for the coming of the Son of God. And we are waiting for Christmas Eve, the Feast of the Nativity. But we also, Advent, the word Adventus in Latin is the translation of the Greek word perusia, which means the second coming of Christ. So they picked up this idea that we are not just waiting for Christmas, we are waiting for Christ's return. So there's a double meaning in the season of Advent. So surely the Lord is coming soon, we say, as we start this service off. 
Now, let's jump back to Isaiah 64 here, and the prophet is giving us a poem of lamentation. He's lamenting the situation in the world, and he's crying out to God, and there are four kind of parts to this lamentation in this section. It's a complaint, and then a request, and then a problem, and then a claim. In verse 1, he says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. His complaint is this, God, you seem far away. God, you seem so distant from your people. It's as if the heavens, the stars, the sky are like a veil that keep us from being close to you. Tear that open and come down. And the second, the request is to do something awesome. Look at verse 3. Come down. Rend the heavens and come down. Then it says, when you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. I often use the word awesome, and I probably do the word a disservice. I say awesome all the time, but it's not necessarily awesome what I'm commending. Awesome means it's awe-inspiring. It's so big that the only response is awe, jaw-dropping awe. And God has done these things in the past. And Isaiah is saying, remember, when you came down, the things you did that no one expected, you parted the Red Sea, you led us into the wilderness, you fed us with heavenly bread, the manna that fell. You brought quail when we complained and wanted meat. I could go on and on and on retelling the story. And Isaiah is saying, where is that power? Where is your presence? Rend the heavens and come down again. We need you. But then, not only, that's his request. Do something awesome for us. But then there's a problem. Look at verse 5. He says, you meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins, we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We've been in our sins a long time. We have been, we've turned from you for so long. And there's a whole list of things that I circled here of those who actually want the Lord. In verse 4, those who wait for him. In verse 5, those who joyfully work righteousness and and remember you in your ways. In verse 7, those who call upon your name and those who take hold of you, who rouse themselves to take hold of you. But we're not doing these things. And, and we've, we've been long in our sins. There's this problem, is that we need you, and, and you've turned your face away from us because we've sinned and rebelled. So what can we do? Well, he cries out, Lord, have mercy. And in, look, look what he says in, in his big claim in verse 8. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. And so he appeals not to God just as God Almighty, but God the Father. And the Father who has compassion for his children. Look at what Psalm 103 says. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, and he remembers that we are dust. This says something about who God is. Not just God Almighty, all-powerful, but God a father who has compassion on his kids. For those who are in Christ, this is incredibly good news. In John's gospel, the proclamation begins telling us that for all who did receive the Son of God, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Not just creatures of God any longer, but children of God. And there's a difference. The children have been adopted into his family, have been welcomed in, and now have this different relationship with God. Not God who's distant and just all-powerful, but God imminently present, a tender-hearted God, the one who cares for his children. We see God as our Father, this is good news. Hear what the herald is saying here. The problem of sin is dealt with by appealing to God as our Father. Have compassion and come and save us. 
We need you to save us. Come is what Isaiah is crying out for. Come and do this again. Save us. Now, when Jesus prayed, he utterly stunned his disciples with the, with the, the personal way he approached God. Not formal, but very intimate and personal. He prayed, Abba, Father. When he's in the garden in Mark 14, and he's, and he's in Gethsemane, and he's praying, he knows what's about to come. Abba, Father, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. He prays to God as, as the most intimate way you could possibly pray. And Paul makes a big deal of this word, Abba. You know, Abba is not a Greek word. It's an Aramaism. It's, it's a word that he, he puts in there and, and makes a big deal of because it's about a child coming to a father. Abba is a very simple baby word. You know, when you have a, a newborn, and I've been considering this because we have a, a one-year-old nephew who's in town, and he doesn't have teeth yet, and he doesn't say words right, and he only can make a few words. And babies can't say ta-ta. They can't say words like that because they don't have teeth. They can't make the dental sounds. The other thing that babies don't do is they don't make double um, syllables like, like um, ma-me. They go ma-ma, ma-ma. They make the same sound twice. And so abba is the Hebrew way of going da-da or ma-ma or papa. It's very simple. It's very primal. And a baby who absolutely trusts their mother or father is crying out for unconditional love, is trusting Abba. And so Jesus prays to his father that way. Now babies lose their unconditional trust by about 18 months and start to pull away. And all of us, all of us spend the rest of our lives looking for that kind of unconditional love, that kind of intimate connection. And we go about it usually in the wrong way at first. We do it through wanting our fathers or our mothers to be something they can't possibly be. We do it in seeking a, a mate, a spouse, who, to be for us something that they possibly cannot be, or a friend or a boss or whatever it might be. We try to put somebody in that slot that only God, our Heavenly Father, can be for us. We spend our whole lives looking for that. And this is good news, that in God, we have that. He is a Father who is like that for us. Abba. Now, I've talked to a couple of different adoptive parents who have some biological kids and then adopt another child. And you remember Jay Wright. Jay and Amy have uh, three biological children. And then right before they moved to Texas, they adopted Hadassah from Ethiopia. And when you talk to someone who has adopted and has biological kids about the love they have for their children, they will honestly tell you, except for the very rare sick people, but good people will tell you, I love all of my children equally, the adoptive ones exactly the same as the biological ones. And these are sinful, broken people. Think how much more does God love us who he has adopted into his family. That's the love that the Father has for us. Now, there are two rights that an adoptive child has. The first right is an heir to a kingdom. You are citizens of a kingdom. You are heirs and co-heirs with Christ to a kingdom. That is who you are. You belong as citizens of this kingdom. And this is a community of people that are centered on Abba, their father. And so there's a health that's in that community that's different from that, the sickness that's in the world because their needs are being met by the father. He's the center of that community. And you, if you're in Christ, are an heir to that kingdom. The second right that you have is to be able to approach him in boldness and go right before his throne of grace with your prayers, your requests, your needs, whatever is on your heart. 
Christ has opened the way for us. And so God's fatherness trumps other aspects that might keep us away. My children sometimes get cheeky with me, as children will, and will call me Pastor Mike at home. But they're doing it to be cheeky, because the truth of the matter is they knew me as father before anything else, as their dad. Their dad, dad, dad. That's the first thing they said. It wasn't until much later that they started to realize I have a job outside of the home and I have a different role in church. And, and other people see me only as a pastor and not as a human, but they see me as father and then pastor second. So they will come in and just claim fatherness. And the same is true with God. For those who are in Christ, we go right before him as his children who we know he delights in us. And so I want to ask us this question as we begin into Advent. Have you come to God as your father and not just your judge or the king or God Almighty? Have you come to him as your father? And the other question is, are you living on the basis of your adoption and these two rights, that you can boldly approach him and that you are a citizen of another kingdom? Do you remember when Jesus rose from the grave and Mary Magdalene was there early in the morning and she's just grief-stricken and weeping? And she sees Jesus, but thinks he's the gardener, and says, sir, if you've taken his body away, tell us where it is. And then when he speaks her name and says, Mary, instantly she knows it's him, and she knows that she's known by him. And then she hugs him, and you know what he says to her? Don't cling to me, for I've not yet ascended to my father, but go and tell my brothers, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. What Jesus did is he showed us who God is as a father, and he invited us into a relationship with him as a loving father. And what Paul says in Romans 8 is that the Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and it's by the Spirit that we cry out, Abba, Father. And so in closing, let me, let me remind you of what Jesus said in Luke 11. He said, if you fathers, earthly fathers, um, which of you fathers, if your son comes and asks for fish, will give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And the Holy Spirit comes and bears witness to us that we are his children. So I want to invite you to pray now as we start into Advent and ask the Holy Spirit to come and do what he does and affirm our sonship and daughtership to the great king. I thank you, Lord, for this good news that you are not just Lord and King, but also Abba, our Father. So we come to you and we pray, give us your spirit. I pray for those who've never trusted you as Father, who are in need of a Father figure, that you would be that as you designed us to need. And I pray for those who know they are Christians but have not walked in their promises this Advent, as the calendar renews and as we approach the Feast of the Nativity, Spirit of God, would you speak identity over your people? Tell us whose we are and who we are. For I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.